Let's turn our attention now to the word of the Lord. Before we do, let us pray. God, we come before you once again. Lord, we thank you for a Sunday where we can worship and sing songs that we grew up on, Lord. Songs that have carried us through many a difficult day. Uh, we thank you for an opportunity to worship you through our tithes, through our offerings, through our giving. Lord, now we come to the point in the service where we worship you through the preaching of your word. God, I know I say this many weeks, but I stand at this pulpit unable and unworthy to proclaim your precious word. Father, in spite of my frailty, in spite of my failures, Lord, I pray that your word would go forth you would convict us this morning, that you would comfort us and challenge us, give us boldness and strength. Father, remind us of the truth of your word. Let it sink into our hearts and change our lives. Father, I, I do not have words that can do that. Only your word is sufficient to change hearts, to change lives. We ask that you do that this morning. We ask these things in the name of the Father and Son Holy Spirit. Amen. If you have your Bible with you this morning, and I hope that you do, please take it and turn with me once again to the New Testament book of Philippians. The New Testament book of Philippians. We will continue our sermon series, and this morning we'll be reading from Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. If you didn't bring your own Bible, or maybe you don't have one, there's a Bible in the pew back right in front of you. You're welcome to take that and use it, or to take it and keep it as our gift to you. We have plenty more that we can replenish in the pews, or if you prefer to just follow along on the screen. However you're accessing the Word of the Lord, I would ask if you're physically able, would you please stand with me out of respect and reverence for the public reading of God's Holy Word. As we look together now at Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, as is our tradition, I will read the passage for us. When I have completed, I will say this is the word of the Lord. I encourage you to respond by saying thanks be to God, for we are grateful for his word. Let's look together now at Philippians chapter 2. The word of the Lord says, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. 
This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. As we have been working our way through the book of Philippians, we began our study in Acts 16. We looked at some of the early converts, some of the first members of the church at Philippi. We looked at a demon-possessed girl, a, a woman in high fashion and industry named Lydia. And we looked at a jailer who was a Roman jailer in the city of Philippi. These were the three families that helped found and begin the church at Philippi. And so it is that church to which Paul is writing. He spends the first chunk of chapter 1 talking about things that relate to him, talking about even though he is in prison, he's in prison on purpose and for a purpose, that God has used him being in prison to further the gospel to people that never would have heard it otherwise. And then we saw last week in verse 27, he makes a shift and says, instead of focusing on the things about me, let's turn now to the things about you. And he says, let the manner of your life be worthy of the gospel. We've talked about three L words, three L words that epitomize a life that is worthy of the gospel. It is someone who is willing to leverage, to leave or to leave, leveraging your career, what God has called you to for his glory, to influence people, to become disciples or to maybe leave where God has planted you initially, and go where he is sending you, whether that be as a missionary or even to pick up your business and to move your business to another city where there is greater lostness, to be somebody who leverages their position in their authority and their affluence at work to help plant a church even in some other city like London where all of the world is coming to our major cities. Lastly, we said that you can lead. And you may feel called to give up whatever your career is. Give up the aspirations that you have in your life now so that you may take on a role of leading the church and leading others to leverage and to lead. So leverage, leave, lead. These are the manners by which we walk a life, live a life that is worthy of the gospel. That is what Christ is calling all of us to do. Then the next aspect of that, Paul moves into chapter 2. So, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, or any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, don't just gloss past verse 1. Sometimes when we read Scripture, it is so easy for us to just get to the meaty part. All right, I know that verse 6 is coming, and verses 6 through 11 are some of the most powerful and beautiful words in all of Scripture about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for us. But don't miss verse 1. Verse 1 says, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any encouragement, if there is any comfort, if there is any participation in the Spirit, if there is any affection and sympathy, then the result will be being of one mind, being in one accord with one another. You see, the way that we exemplify to the world outside of this church not just this church campus, but this church, the body of believers, the members of this church that form this one collective group, the way we evidence to those outside of our membership that we are of Christ, that we live lives worthy of the gospel is by being of the same mind, of the same love, and in full accord and of one mind. Having encouragement in Christ 
will lead to unity. Having comfort from love will lead to unity. Having participation in the Spirit will lead to unity. Having affection and sympathy will lead to unity. If these things do not exist, there will not be unity. So look at it in reverse. When there is disunity in our body, when there is disunity among the church, when we are divided, people often lack affection and sympathy. People are often not participating in the Spirit. Their hearts have grown cold and callous. People are not comforting one another out of love. If there is any comfort offered whatsoever, it's only lip service. It's not genuine comfort offered to somebody out of a love in our hearts. There is no encouragement in Christ when disunity exists in the church. Folks, I, I ask you, I don't, I don't ask this often, make a note somewhere on a bulletin or in the margins of your Bible that the next time that you see or hear of division, divisiveness, or disunity among this church or whatever church you may be a part of decades down the road, I want you to come back to this passage and look around and see if in the midst of division, in the midst of divisiveness, in the midst of backbiting, in the midst of us yay-yaying back and forth among ourselves, see if you see any encouragement in Christ. See if you see or feel any comfort from love or any participation in the Spirit. See if there's any affection or sympathy. See if any of those things exist in the midst of a united church. And I would offer this morning that those things will not be present. That those are parts of the way that we combat divisiveness and disunity. Have affection for one another. Have sympathy for one another. Understand that nobody exists in a vacuum. Our individual choices are choices that we make, but we are who we are because of what we've been through. Because of where we've been and because of what just happened five minutes ago. If I just got off the phone with my wife and I'm in trouble because I didn't get home in time. And then you come up to the church office and you need to talk to me and I got to get out the door. And I'm rude and I rush past you. I do that because, hey, guess what? I just got in trouble with my wife. Now, I got to be honest with you, that hasn't happened since I've been here. But you get the point. Maybe somebody just got blessed out by their boss. And chewed up one side and down the other. And then you walk in. Hey, buddy, how's it going, man? And they're like, man, I, just, I ain't got time for you today. I'll tell you what, there ain't no comfort from love in here. And you march on out. When there is unity, you have affection for one another. You have sympathy. You give people the benefit of the doubt. You go, you know what, I don't know what they've been through today. So let me give them the benefit of the doubt today. And if two weeks from now they're still acting that way, maybe there's not participation in the Spirit. And I can go to them as a brother or a sister in love and offer comfort to them and say, listen, how can we help? How can I partner alongside you? How can I bear whatever burden you're carrying? How can I help carry that load? Folks, Paul takes a hard turn into the unity of the church because we'll see later he'll revisit this theme. Later on he's going to talk about two people within the Philippian church that are at odds with one another. And this is how you resolve disunity. This is how you resolve disunity in your marriage. This is how you resolve discord in your workplace. You have the same mind as Christ. You do what verse 3 says. And folks, I, I know I say this often, but listen, th this verse 
is a verse that is so close to my heart. Verses 3 and 4 of Philippians chapter 2 are at the top of my list of how I want my entire life to be ordered. I want for people to be able to look at my life and see Philippians chapter 2 verses 3 and 4. And I know that I am far from it. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of us look not only to our own interests, but also to the interests of others. Folks, you want to put a spike through the middle of discord and division, whether it's in your home, whether it's in your family, whether it's in your business, whether it's in the church. The way that you combat this kind of discord is to examine our hearts and find out, am I really doing what I'm doing out of selfish ambition? Am I acting this way out of conceit? Is this for my own pride? Is this so that people will look at me and raise me up? Is this so that I can come out and be the winner? Even when it's as simple as a disagreement with your spouse. How many of us have been in the midst of that argument with your spouse? How many of you have been in the midst of that argument with your parent and you don't even care about who's right or who's wrong anymore? And maybe in the moment you can't evaluate this, but once it's over, you look back and you go, you know, I, I really, I said that because I didn't really care whether I was right or wrong. I just wanted to win. We have this competitive nature within us and selfishly, I want to win the argument. I want to beat the other person down until they admit that I am right. And then I will stand triumphantly over them as the king of righteousness and being right. I have won and it is about me and my pride. Folks, you've been in those arguments. Whether it's with your parents, whether it's with your grandparents, whether it's with your friends, spouse. You've said things that you infinitely regret saying. Harsh words that once they're gone, you know, once these words leave our mouths, it's it's like you want to grab them and bring them back, but they're gone. They're just words. (laughs) No, 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 (laughs) I didn't mean it. But they're gone. Once you've said them, once you've spoken them, the venom and the poison in those words hits its mark. This happens in our closest relationships because the thing about it is the people we're closest to, we know their greatest insecurities. We can wound them and hurt them like nobody else in this world can wound and hurt because we know right where to hit and we know right what words to say and in that moment it's all about selfish ambition it's all about conceit it's all about me listen even this morning we sat in a staff meeting planning this service and we were hesitant to do the service this way because we were afraid that it might cause disunity in the church. Because there's going to be some people after this service is over that are going to say, boy, I liked how we sang all them hymns. They're going to go up to Jason and they're going to say, hey, Jason, how come we don't do that every week? How come we're not singing songs like that every week? How come we don't open them hymnals up no more? How come we're not worshiping this way? This is what real worship is, Jason. And this is what we need more often. Where the heart of that meeting was, We know we don't do hymns like that every week. And we want to do a Sunday like this so that people who have sung these songs through their whole lives, these songs that have stood the test of time, we can sing them together as a church and be united 
in old songs or new songs. We strive week in and week out to have a balance between the great hymns of our past and some of these new praise choruses that come along, these new songs, these new hymns that come along that are so powerful and impactful to our culture and our society right now. But folks, I've got to be honest with you, I have worship preferences. You know, I, I don't storm into Jason's office and say, Hey, Jason, man, how come you didn't play that song I really love? Buddy, I'm the pastor. I'm the lead pastor here at Bethany Baptist Church. I'm going to tell you what song you're going to play, and you're going to play it this Sunday. Now get up there, music man, and play my song. Selfish ambition, conceit, and pride. Folks, a service like today should fill a heart as we look around the congregation and see our brothers and sisters being ministered to by powerful music with lyrics that are biblical, that draw us into the presence of the Lord. And next week, we should all be back here in the same spot. You can sit in the same seat. We'll save it for you. When the students lead us, and every song that we sing is leaning more contemporary. And when the students worship and they raise their hands, it should bless our hearts that our brothers and sisters are singing good, biblical songs to music that they enjoy. It should create unity not discord and division. But folks, we find the smallest thing, the tiniest thing, to decide to be selfish about, to decide to be conceited about. It should not be so. And then here's the other thing that we do, is we take the opposite approach of pride. The opposite of verses 3 and 4 is the opposite of what you see in verses 5 through 11. When we are in the midst of strife, when we are in the midst of trouble, when we are in the midst of the fire, what we want to do is double down. What we want to do is puff our chests out and assert our dominance. You will not treat me this way. You will not speak to me that way. I will right what has been wrong. And everything that we learn in this passage about how to fight a battle like a Christian is counterintuitive. Let's read just one more time, picking up in verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition. Do nothing from conceit, but in humility. Count others more significant than yourself. Their salvation is more important than me winning this argument. Their salvation, their comfort is more important than my comfort in this morning, in this moment, this morning. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves. This mind belongs to us in Christ Jesus. If we believe in the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus, if we have placed our trust in Him, this attitude, this mindset belongs to us. It's not foreign. It's not far off. We can do this. This is attainable. Have this mind among us, which is ours in Christ Jesus, who, though He was in the form of God, Jesus is God. He's not a good man. He's not a prophet. He's not somebody who said some wise stuff. He's not a historical legendary figure. He's not mythical. He's not, Im- he's not improbable. He is God. End of story. He is in the very form of God. And he doesn't count that equality with God as a thing to be grasped. I am equal with the Father. I will not descend. But he empties himself. He doesn't consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. And how many of us 
today aspire to be the gods and the kings of our own life or our own industry or our own empire. But Jesus did not see equality with God as a thing to be grasped or aspire for. Yet he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Jesus humbled himself so the Father exalted him. You see, when we fail to live out what this mindset that belongs to us is, at the heart of it, it's a disbelief. It's a disbelief that God will make things right. If I'm in a disagreement with my brother or my sister, with a friend, with my wife, with my children, with my parents, if I'm in the midst of a disagreement, I have to make known what is right. I have to right what is wrong instead of humbling myself. Because what if God doesn't make what's right? What if he doesn't make what's right come to the surface? What if he doesn't exalt those who are humble? Listen, this is, this is what the world will tell us is the path of weakness. This is what the world will tell us is being submissive and abdicating and giving up and throwing up our hands and being passive and just saying, it doesn't matter. That's not what Jesus did. Jesus didn't throw his hands up and say, it doesn't matter. He willingly, powerfully, filled with strength, laid his life down for the sake of others. And church, some of us are in the midst of a firestorm. And we think if I just knuckle up, if I just buckle down, if I just double down on it, if I just be harsher, if I just bow up and I just dig in, then I can fix it. But let me tell you something, brother, sister, we can't fix it that way. You can't fix your marriage by knuckling up and doubling down. But you can fix your marriage by humbling yourself. By willingly saying, you, my spouse, are worth more to me than I am. By willingly saying, I will lay down my life for you by going to that friend and saying me being right in this circumstance is worthless if I lose you as a friend so I'm willing to lay down my arms and be your friend at whatever the cost I'm opening up my chest and you can stab me if you need to but I'm going to let you stab me and I'm going to keep being your friend and your brother this is the strength of our savior To let people pierce him. When he could have called legions upon legions of angels. He could have snapped his fingers. He could have said a word. He could have said, "Uh uh-uh. He didn't even got to say a word. He could be hanging on the cross and mutter, "Uh uh-uh. And when he does that, everything stops. He's off the cross. He's back on the throne. And he is no longer humbled. But he had the strength and the power to put us to humble himself. And folks, We should have such faith. He trusted that there would be a day when God the Father would exalt him. There was no need for Jesus to know that he needed to exalt himself because God would exalt him. I don't have to make my name big because God will make my name big when it counts and when it matters. And listen, at the heart of it, when we double down, when we knuckle up, 
It's us saying, I got this, God, and, and I don't really know if you're going to handle it. And I don't really know if you're going to handle it the way that I think it ought to be handled. But folks, I, I got a list of scriptures that we're going to go through this morning. All right, it's a lot of scripture. I'm warning you ahead of time. This is a lot of Bible, but you know what I need in my life? A whole lot of Bible. So we're going to take enough time to let you get there. It ain't even on the screen. I want you to go there in your Bible. I want you to mark these places. I want us to walk through this scripture together because this is how we fight our battles as Christians. This is how we win in the name of Jesus and win people to Jesus and win our marriages over for Jesus and win our families over for Jesus. We trust that the Lord is fighting our battles. Turn with me. Starting off, going to Psalms, the book of Psalms, Psalm 27. Turn to the middle of your Bible. The middle of your Bible is Psalms. As you get there, go back from the middle to Psalm 27. Old Testament, Psalm 27. As some of you are still turning, begin to listen and mark this page when you get there. Verse 1 says, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and my foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though this the war arise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing I have asked for of the Lord, that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in His temple, for He will hide me in His shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. And I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud, be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. O you who have been my help, cast me not off. Forsake me not, O God of my salvation. For my father and my mother have forsaken me. But the Lord will take me in. Teach me your way, O Lord. And lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries. For false witnesses have risen against me, and they breathe out violence. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Folks, if ever you have been in the midst of trial or trouble, and this whole world and the news media and Facebook and every type of social media has turned against you, the Psalms have you covered. People are speaking falsehoods against me and bearing false witness. They breathe out violence against me. But this one thing that I desire is to dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Who cares what they say? Who cares what they do to me? God, my only desire is to dwell in your house forever. To be able to worship in your temple. To inquire of you in your temple. Go further back in the Old Testament. De Deuteronomy chapter 32. 
Deuteronomy chapter 32, verses 3 and 4. If you don't have time to get there, jot it down. Deuteronomy 32, 3 and 4. Deuteronomy 32, 3 and 4. Moses writes, For I will proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God, the rock. His work is perfect, for all His ways are justice. A God of faithfulness without iniquity, just and upright is He. Deuteronomy 32, 3 and 4 reminds us that our God is faithful. Our God is a God of justice, and He will work justice out in your life. And if it's not in our lifetime, it will come after we are dead. But justice will come because our God is a just God. Our God is a faithful God. And even if they crucify us in this life, whether they crucify us literally or figuratively, whether they crucify our reputation or our physical bodies, we will see justice when we are face to face with the Lord who is faithful. You do not have to exalt yourself But if we humble ourselves, God will exalt us. God will fight the battle. Isaiah chapter 30. Isaiah chapter 30, verse 18. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are those who wait for Him. Isaiah 30, 18 says, Therefore the Lord waits to be gracious to you. God is ready and eager to be gracious to us. Therefore He exalts Himself to show mercy to us. God is ready to show us grace and mercy, but we bypass His grace and mercy because we're going to assert ourselves in the situation. We're going to make it right on our own. But the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are those who wait for Him. Colossians chapter 3, New Testament. Colossians chapter 3. Remember the General Electric Power Company? Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. General Electric Power Company in the midst of the New Testament. Colossians chapter 3, beginning in verse 23. Colossians chapter 3, beginning in verse 23. Whatever you do, verse 23 begins, Whatever you do, work heartily, as for the Lord and not for men. We're, We're not here for their praise. We're not here for them to acknowledge how awesome we are. We're working heartily because God will acknowledge The same way that God raised Christ Jesus up and exalted Him, when we are humble and we work for the Lord, God will exalt us. Not for men. Verse 24, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Verse 25, for the wrongdoer will be paid back. The wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done there is No partiality. Even if it doesn't happen in our lifetime, we can have faith that those who have wronged us and done wrong, the wrongdoer will pay for the wrong that they have done. And there's no partiality. The Lord doesn't show any favoritism to anybody. Oh, but it was Eddie. I mean, Eddie did something wrong. I really like Eddie. I'm going to let that slide. No. The wrongdoer will pay for the wrong they have done. Whether you were a member at Bethany Baptist Church or whether you were a lost person, the wrongdoer will pay for the wrong that they have done. Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12, beginning in verse 19. Romans chapter 12, beginning in verse 19. Romans chapter 12, beginning in verse 19. Folks, this is hard. This is tough stuff, but this is the brass tacks of the gospel. 
This is us being like Jesus. Romans chapter 12. In the same way that Jesus humbled himself and did not speak a word in the midst of his accusers. Romans chapter 12 verse 19 tells us, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals upon their head. Do not overcome, do not be overcome by evil. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Folks, if you think you can win by doubling down and being just as evil and selfish and conceited as the people that are being that way to you are, you're dead wrong. You don't overcome evil with evil. You overcome evil with the gospel. We overcome those who are wronging us with the gospel. We love them in a way till they finally go, why on earth are you not retaliating? You get in a fight with your wife or your husband, and there you are, it's just you're in the meat of it, in the, hit, in the heat of the battle, and you stop and take a step back and go, you know what? It's not worth all this. I'm sorry. I lay down my arms. I lay down my weapons. I love you. And that's it. And if I need to be wrong, I'm wrong. I'm willing to be wrong. They're still yelling at you. They're still mad. It's okay. That's okay. But I'm, I'm not fighting back. And everything in you, they say that one more thing. That one more thing. Your parents, your kids, whoever it is, your coworker, they throw that one more thing in there for you. And it's like, oh, now I'm going to, oh, I got this one tucked in my back pocket. I've been waiting to tell you how fat and stupid you are, and here it comes. But instead, you have the strength of Christ. And you say, you know what, maybe there's some truth to what you're saying. Maybe I need to work on myself a little bit. But because Jesus is in me, and because I love him, I don't have to fire back at you. This is okay. I know you're mad, I know you need to say some more angry things at me. But I picked Jesus over this fight. All Jesus had to do was utter one sound. But he didn't count equality with God something to be attained. He did nothing from selfish ambition. Everybody along Jesus' life wanted to take him and make him the Messiah and overthrow Rome, but he said, no, it's not my time. That's not what this is about. It's about being humble. And so church, some of you are in the midst of the fight. Some of you are coming out of a fight. Some of you are going into a fight. Some people in this room probably already have false accusations being thrown up against them. Some people might be of terrible reputation outside of this place and in the midst of our community. And none of it is true. And you were there and you know what happened. And you know if you did wrong, the wrongdoer will pay for the wrong they have done. And you know if you did right and everybody's throwing vile and evil, poisonous things against you, that you can step back with confidence and say, my Jesus has it. The last story I want to remind you of is a story from 2 Kings. 2 Kings chapter 6, beginning in verse 15. Elisha, the prophet, has been telling the king of Israel everywhere that their enemies would attack. So when the 
enemy shows up to attack, thinking they're going to surprise Israel, Israel is ready and prepared. And they are whooping the enemy's tails every single time. So the king of the enemy army says, hey, I know what we're going to do. We're going to go catch this prophet, the prophet who is predicting the future, right? Telling the king of Israel where the enemy's armies will be. He thinks he can outsmart the prophet by sneaking up on him. Yeah, it's a great plan from the start. You can see no holes in this theory whatsoever. He goes to sneak up on Elisha and Elisha's attendant comes and runs into him and says, Elisha, there's like thousands of them. You know, you, have you seen the, there's chariots and there's horsemen and there's archers and they got the shield and they got those big spear things, you know, like the big ones that kill the horses so that we can't even charge at them with horses. I, like we're dead. This is it. We're done. I've really enjoyed serving with you, Elisha. I just, I wish I could tell my mom something. I wish I just, I don't know what's going to happen. Lord, I guess we just done. It's been good serving you. I'll see you soon, Lord Jesus. And Elisha just looks at him and chuckles. <laughs> he says, hey, Lord, my servant's a little freaked out, okay? He's a little concerned. Could you open his eyes that he might see the whole truth? And God grants Elisha's prayer. And the attendant is fretting and worrying for his life. And the Lord opens his eyes. And when he opens the servant's eyes, there are thousands upon thousands of flaming chariots littering the sky, filling every corner of the sky. And the servant looks up and Elisha very calmly says to him, those who are for us far outnumber those who are against us. Brother, sister, if we believe in Jesus, if we trust in His death, in His burial, in His resurrection, if we've given our lives over to Him, I want to assure you this morning that if you are right and just in your cause, there are far more who are for you than who are against you. Folks in your marriages, as you parent, as you are a child of parents, have this attitude among yourselves. May we have this attitude among ourselves. It belongs to us because we believe in Jesus. Let us empty ourselves, choosing the path of meekness, knowing that God will make it right. It's not my job to fight the battle. It's my job to love the enemy. And God will fight battle. This morning, are you trying to fight your own battle? This morning, are, are you trying to do things out of selfish ambition and conceit? Who are you in this story this morning? Which spouse are you? Which friend are you? Which co-worker? Let us be a people of unity among one another. Let us be a people who let the Lord do our fighting for us. Let's pray. Great God in heaven, thank you for fighting our battles. Thank you, God, that you don't require us to pick up a sword and a shield and fend off the fiery darts of the evil one. Lord, you are standing before us. You go before us. You follow behind us. But God, we are feeble and we are weak. So many times we act out of selfish ambition, out of our own pride. 
Lord, there's no comfort, there's no affection, there's no sympathy. It's all selfish. God, I know that my heart is selfish and turned in. Help us, Lord. To consider others more important than our own selves. To fight our battles the way that you showed us how to fight. In the example of Elisha, in the example of Jesus. Lord, help us to trust in you that you are a God of justice and faithfulness and you will make things right. Father, help us also to remember that the wrongdoer will pay for the wrong that they have done. That the only forgiveness that is available is forgiveness that is found at the foot of your cross and at the entrance of your empty tomb. Lord, if there is someone here who does not believe in your death, the burial, the resurrection, move on their heart. They may dwell in your house forever. We love you. We ask that during this time of response, you would move among us. We would respond in obedience. We ask these things in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit.